This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this lovely Saturday morning, and uh, I welcome you all. Uh, This is the 24th consecutive program we're doing now on topics related to COVID-19, and it's amazing that we are still in the midst of all this. So we're going to talk a little bit about why we're in the midst of this and how we're going to get out of it. And take your calls. Um, I enjoy getting your emails, uh, and uh, we'll love to get more of them and have all, you know discussions online with you. The phone numbers here are eight six zero five two two nine eight four two and one eight hundred nine six six nine eight four two. My email is info at alessimd.com. Later on in the program, my guest is going to be Dr. Stephen Wolf. Dr. Wolf is the chairman of emergency medicine at St. Francis Hospital here in Hartford, and he's going to talk about how emergency services are being underutilized. And the problem here is that more people are having strokes, heart attacks, getting to the hospital late because of a fear of COVID. So we're going to chat with him about that. As our regular listeners know, I missed the show last week because... I had to take uh, my certification for advanced cardiac life support and CPR. And we were able to do it outdoors. A good friend of mine, uh, Fred Potter, uh, is a paramedic and an instructor, and he agreed to do the class on a Saturday outdoors on the patio for several of uh, my friends who needed to get recertified. And we got together and were able to do it socially distanced, wearing masks, and get through the course. You understand that there's got to be a new way of doing things. We have to start finding new approaches to getting things done safely right now until we defeat this virus. One of the things that has really become evident to all of us is how dependent we are on technology. Let's face it, this week we had bad weather, hurricane Uh, tornado, power's out, power's still out for many people. And you could see that we have become so dependent on technology, on uh, the Internet and electricity, and it's crucial for us to get things done, especially now with the pandemic because so many people are working from home. A colleague of mine were having a conversation, and she was telling me that her husband was on a committee for his – his business. He is an engineer for a large company, and it was the office of the future. So this was before the pandemic. He was on this committee to look at what would the office of the future look like. And there were all kinds of permutations with, you know, couches and uh, cubicles and other areas. And there's a lot of design. And suddenly after pandemic, they announced the office of the future is in your house. 
So he was entirely moved to even his laboratory equipment uh, that he does with engineering testing uh, is now in his basement. So the couches in the office are now the couch in your living room for many people, thus making us more and more dependent on technology, especially physicians. A lot of what we do is read images, read studies that are done. In fact, the chief of radiology at UConn informed us that they are all they have all been working from home since the beginning of the pandemic. If we need a consultation with them, they have a separate site set up. We could specify what radiologist and their specialty is so that we could set up a call and look at the films with them virtually without being in the same office, the same building, or even in the same state. Actually, you don't even have to be in the same country to get a consult like that to review films on a patient. So it's amazing that over the course of the last four months, we have really progressed in that area. And it's, it's important for us to realize that we have this need and need to protect the technology behind it and the internet as it is. Last night, once again, I was at the Mohegan Sun. We had uh, Bellator 243, uh, which was an MMA event. Uh, as regular listeners know, these events are now done without fans, so there's nobody in attendance. And we have the good fortune of people bringing athletic presentations to our state. In this case, Bellator well-known internationally for MMA, has taken up residency at the Mohegan Sun Casino, as well as alternating with Showtime Boxing, probably the leader in televised and promotional boxing events. So they have taken up a residency at the casino and at the venue there. That means they have blocked out an extensive number of dates where they bring professionals in, fighters, but also technology people, TV people, um, all to do their events here in Connecticut. What that means to us is that Connecticut citizens have gone back to work. The people who make up the rooms, the people who service the hotel, the people who work in the arena. I had a chat with one of the arena workers last night in, in between bouts, uh, an old friend, and we were chatting, and he was saying that this thing has really been a lifesaver for many of the people here because at least it's given them some part-time work. They're not all back full-time, but part-time, and they could cycle more people through so that they're getting some income. This has all been made possible by Hartford Healthcare. The reason being, you can imagine now, the intensity of how we have to study these uh, people coming into the state. They get tested before they get on a plane, wherever they are. As soon as they get here, before they check into the hotel, they are once again tested for COVID-19. And then everyone who is going to be in the arena, whether you're a doctor, paramedic, whoever you are, announcer, is tested within 24 hours of the event. So it's interesting to see how this has evolved and Hartford HealthCare has put together a team that I am so proud to be around. Uh, I mean, these are people who are working at crazy hours, 
to try and get this all done so that we can do this. And in fact, we've been contacted by other organizations who now want to bring their programs here to Connecticut. The reason being, we're doing it right. Okay, that's the reward. If you keep doing it right, wearing masks, washing your hands, contact tracing, okay, just the basic things we have talked about, identification, isolation, contact tracing. If we're doing it right, we're going to attract more business here. The question becomes, what are we doing as a nation? And, and that's certainly up for debate at this time. With that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to look at some of the COVID statistics. We're going to talk about some of the questions that have come in on the Internet. If you have questions for me, this is the segment to get them in. Um, the phone number is 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842 or email me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And a lot of the questions have come up. Uh, One question uh, came up uh, on the Internet to me, and that was looking at statistics. If you look at Connecticut, and believe me, there's a lot of statistics running around here, right? People are comparing numbers and trying to come up with what defends their position or whatever. But here in Connecticut, you know, overall, we've had 50,320 cases, positive cases. Of that, we've had a death rate of 4,441. So that's roughly 8.8%. In the United States, we've had over 5 million uh, cases and unbelievably uh, over 162,000 deaths. So the question became, in Connecticut, our death rate per positive case was fairly high at 8.8%. But what we're looking at are trends, and you could see that those trends have gone down. If you look at the past month, that trend is now 3.05%, which is lower than the global or national death rate if you look at the comparing it to the number of positive cases. Uh, This past week, it was only 1.76%. So the idea here is to look at the trends. And the trend we're most concerned with is death. Okay, Are we seeing more deaths? Well, in the United States today, we're seeing more than 1,000 deaths a day. That it, I, I don't know in what world where that's acceptable, where people say we have it under control. It's just not the case when that many people are dying. And hopefully people have gotten rid of the idea that this is just like the flu because nobody died. You don't see this many deaths from the flu. So in Connecticut, our trends are... Dramatic. We have days now where we see no deaths. We see very few positive cases. We have plenty of room in our ICUs, in our hospitals, and in our emergency rooms. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later with Dr. Stephen Wolf um, about emergency services. So it's important to get that uh, under 
into some understanding. Multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, now called MIS-C. People are out there saying that children are immune from COVID-19. Now, you have to understand the definition of immunity. Immunity is the ability for an organism to resist a particular infection or toxin. It's absolute. You're either immune or you're not immune. Okay. So although we see COVID-19 less in children, it is still there in children. So by being a child, your age does not give you some immunity to this virus. And in fact, very little is known about immunity to this virus. Other people have said, well, your blood type in the past, that's been disproven. So we're really guessing at this. Here's what we do know. We know that we have had in this country 600 cases of multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. And that's key because it does affect children and adolescents. And it's important for us to protect our greatest resource in this country, our children and grandchildren. The symptoms that come on are typically fever, rash, bloodshot eyes, vomiting, diarrhea, a lot of general symptoms that you would see with ordinary infections or viral infections in general. Often this syndrome comes on about two to four weeks after having COVID-19. But it's important to understand that children are not immune. And the real question that every parent and grandparent is struggling with now is, should children be going back to school? And if they go back to school, what does that look like? And it's important that we decide that as a community and as families. Many people are going to a lot of variations on this in terms of homeschooling or doing pods on the internet uh, for their children or physically going to pods in lieu of going to classes until we get a vaccine, which brings me to my next topic. The vaccine is not going to be a magical panacea. And Dr. Fauci made that clear this week. So he's hoping, he is uh, very optimistic by saying he's hoping by early 2021, we will have an effective vaccine. What does the word effective mean? Well, we have an effective vaccine for influenza, but it only works 60% of the time. So it's effective because people who get it, okay, some will not get influenza and others may just get a few symptoms of influenza with that vaccine. So 60% people consider effective. Dr. Fauci is hoping for 70%. That still leaves 30% of people who get the vaccine that are going to get COVID-19. So to think that we will have a vaccine that is 98% effective is very wishful thinking. And the reason is because of the way the vaccine is designed, the way the vaccine is administered. It's probably the early vaccine is probably going to be at least two shots. So an injection followed by a booster shot. 
which is the way many early vaccines are administered. So we then get to the issue of who's getting the vaccine. Who are going to be people getting it? Is everyone going to have equal access to it? Well, again, strategically, we need to sit down as a country, not as a state, not as a city, as a country, and make some decisions regarding first responders. Are we going to give it to the elderly first? Are we going to give it to doctors and nurses who are subjected to the virus a great deal? Um, so uh, we're going to have to make a lot of ethical decisions when a virus is available. So we've still got a lot of work to do on this if we're going to defeat the virus. The frustration for me is we shouldn't be here now. Understand a virus, and, and actually some of our listeners have made this clear uh, to me, a virus is not a living organism. It needs a host to live in. It needs to live off of someone. So if you remove the host, the virus dies. So one approach to public health was, or is, shut everything down. I mean, shut everything down except for essential services. Okay? Test, find out where the virus is, isolate those people, trace them, so you know that those people have the virus. They are hosts for the virus. Eventually, that virus dies. In fact, the virus dies everywhere because it needs us to live. So if we make a decision as a country, since we're worried about the country, to isolate, which we did in March, we shut things down pretty darn tight, but we didn't know when to let up, and we didn't shut it all down in every state the way it should have been done. So that's why we have this lingering problem. This virus has also taught us a lot about ourselves. Ourselves as individuals, ourselves as families, ourselves as a country. Not all of it good, but some of it's been good in terms of how people have approached this virus to protect themselves and their loved ones and their neighbors because we're all in this together. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Stephen Wolf. He's chairman of emergency medicine at St. Francis Hospital. We're going to be talking about emergency medical services in the COVID-19 era. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, Stephen Waterbury has been on hold. Uh, Steve uh, had a question for us. Uh, Joe, want to send him over? Okay, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, Steve. Yes, hi. I got three questions for you. Uh, one, there's a drug I'm going to try to pronounce it the best I can. Lipsozumab, and another one is Advipidel. Are you yep. familiar with them by any chance? Uh, yes, those are uh, both monoclonal antibodies. Mm-hmm. I uh, understand they've been using them for COVID-19. You know, I just wonder if you had any background. There's also one other thing I want to bring up. There's a uh, <clears throat> something I came across that's uh, yeah, it's uh, a scientific type thing. It's a drug that they used like a thousand years ago. 
but they say that it's actually working good for diabetics with foot ulcers that are resistant to antibiotics. I could either email it to you. I can mention the, the name, sure. but I don't know which you prefer. Okay, why don't you email me that one, and I could look that up a little bit, and then uh, I'll spend a few minutes talking about monoclonal antibodies. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling. All right. So monoclonal antibodies are probably the most promising uh, treatment uh, going forward for COVID-19. And we all know antibodies are what the body produces in order to fight off an infection. In this case, we have we have something called monoclonal antibodies where we design antibodies that are used for certain conditions. And we inject those into the patient or you can take them by oral tablet and those antibodies now attack the virus. We use them in migraine, um, very much so. They're called CGRP antagonists. Um, we use it in a variety of Medicaid, a variety of conditions, including cancer, certain types of cancer. So the monoclonal antibodies are not a vaccine, but they are a treatment. So a company called Regeneron is one of the companies uh, there in New Jersey, I believe, and they are leading the charge in monoclonal antibodies to fight the COVID-19. So instead of somebody producing their own antibodies, when they become ill, you give them the drug, like you take any other drug, and it fights off the infection. And that's how many of these uh, medications work. And they are very benign from the standpoint of side effects. So we're going to follow those uh, a lot more closely. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Wolf. Dr. Wolf is uh, chairman of emergency medicine at St. Francis Hospital. He's been a guest on our program before. And you know, we wanted to talk to him specifically about this fear people have developed of going to the emergency department and the ramifications it's having in our community. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. So let's talk a little bit about this. What What is going on in terms of what are you seeing from the emergency department standpoint? What's the trend in terms of people not coming in? Well, it was extremely um, bad during the height of uh, the COVID epidemic in Connecticut. Um, you know, I think people saw the war zone um, video from New York City, uh, and admittedly, um, the tidal wave was coming at us quite strongly uh, at that time from New York, and certainly the uh the the western uh the western parts of Connecticut and it was uh were were hard hit and also uh we were getting it and so uh the ERs were uh, a bit of a scary place um right in the beginning because we were dealing with mostly covid patients the problem here was though that that patients who needed emergency care were staying away um there the the message that uh state authorities and everybody was was sending out at the time was you know if you need emergency care come to the ER but if you don't then try to stay away and unfortunately i think the pendulum swung uh, quite a bit too far the other way we looked at data during the height of the covid um time here in Connecticut and there was a, about a 40% uh, increase in the 
deaths at home or cardiac arrests that were brought to the hospital with one EMS agency. So it was clear that people who should have come to the ER were not, uh, and they were understandably afraid of COVID, but the risks of not getting emergency care were far greater than the risks of COVID. I mean, that's, that's a pretty impressive number, 40% of these people dying at home. Is that just cardiac, or does that include stroke or other um, it, emergencies? It was everything. It was a 40% increase compared to the year before um, in terms of those who died at home or, or were in cardiac arrest. So this was all types of, of ailments. Uh, so this could have been a uh, perforated appendix or things like, or heart attacks or strokes, um, pulmonary emboli, all of that that could have uh, have caused uh, death in patients. But uh, there was about a 40% increase um, varying depending on which month, uh, but it was during the height of, of the COVID epidemic here in Connecticut. So, Stephen, walk us through the logistics of this. So if we were to come to the emergency room at St. Francis Hospital now, what would it look like? Why, why would I feel safer about coming there? Well, first of all, I think people think that every emergency room has has hordes of people waiting uh, to come in. Uh, we do not. Uh, our waiting room actually is empty. Uh, we move patients in immediately. They're quickly triaged um, and brought into private rooms uh, for the most part. Um, and uh, and so the the risks are minimal, if anything. Um, so so that's really the only people that might be waiting at a safe distance and socially uh, distanced are family members that are waiting uh, to go in. Um, we, we, we are restricting visitors, but we are allowing visitors in. But during the height of the COVID, we could not. There were just too many sick people, and, and everybody was presumed to have have had exposure at the time, so we, um, every hospital restricted visitation, but now we are we are allowing it, and certainly one member of a family is allowed in. So patients are moved right in. They are not kept out in the waiting room. There's no there there's no waiting, and as you know, we, we attempt to see every uh, physician uh, or provider sees somebody within 29 minutes just about all the time. So um, those those uh, visual images of of large masses of people waiting to be seen in emergency rooms simply does not exist at St. Francis. Does it exist anywhere now? I mean, not, I don't mean worldwide, but, you know, it used to be you went to the emergency room, you expected to sit there a couple of hours before you saw a doctor if you had a non-emergent condition. And I say non-emergent, non-life-threatening condition. But now we see billboards all the time, you know, come to our ER. I mean, when I'm driving on the road, only 10-minute wait or whatever the wait is. So are those long waits before you see a medical provider um, a thing of the past, do you think, for most emergency departments? Uh, no, unfortunately. I think it's very institutional, uh, institutional dependent. Um, I think there, a lot of people have attempted to game the system a bit where you have some sort of provider see you quickly and then you wait for definitive yeah. care for a long time. Um, we track everything, so we make sure that, you know, just because we have that that 
uh, effort to see everybody in 29 minutes that we don't game that system so that uh, there is definitive care in a very timely manner. And so it's very institutional dependent, and it depends on, on the flow and the commitment of the institution and the, and the ER working together to move patients through the system in a very efficient, timely manner. Well, that's good to know. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back with my guest, Dr. Stephen Wolf, because I want to talk about the next stage of going to the emergency department, testing. Who gets tested? Who doesn't need to be tested when you come in for COVID-19? And those types of precautions. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. My name is Dr. Anthony Alessi. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Wolf, and he is the chairman of emergency medicine at St. Francis Hospital here in Hartford. Uh, Stephen, uh, so when someone comes to the emergency room, ambulance pulls up, uh, how do you decide who gets tested for COVID, who doesn't get tested for COVID, what precautions to take when you don't really know anything about the patient? Well, we... Uh on every ambulance arrival or before they arrive, we get a we get a uh, an overall clinical impression from the crew. Uh, they know um, what to look for, and so they give us a heads up. But we don't necessarily um, uh, we don't necessarily take only their word for it. It's 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 a screen on arrival as well, because obviously, depending on the situation, they may not have all the time or. To do to do a, a thorough screen, or the patient may not be uh, in a condition to get much information. So um, we we use both the information they get, um, what we see when the patient arrives, and frankly, we err on the side of caution and will make the assumption that a patient is PUI, meaning a patient under investigation for COVID. Uh, and we take those precautions. If it appears once the dust settles that um, the the risks are extremely small, then we then we um, cease and desist on on all of the quarantine um, processes and 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 PPE that we would use. We still use a minimum. We still use a certain amount of PPE on every patient uh, and take the precautions. But um, we make that decision once the dust settles. And if we can't, then the patient stays in that. PUI condition until proven otherwise, and meaning that we get a a, a test result back. Uh, when when you need a test result, for example, in that case where you're not certain and you need to know something quickly, or uh, a patient comes to the emergency room and they're going to go to the OR, they're going to have an aerosolized procedure where they can't be wearing a mask and there may be aerosol in the room. Um, how quickly can you get a test done? Uh, we get a test done. Uh, now, well, we have several choices depending on the type of test that we need in terms of the turnaround. So for those types of tests where time is absolutely of the essence, we can get a turnaround about from start to finish uh, in about a couple of hours, uh, often less so, but probably a minimum of an hour. So, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have the results of the test. And so when the patient going is going for a procedure or cardiac, an emergent cardiac cath, uh, the teams up there have to use standard precautions and respiratory precautions 
um, anyway, and so they won't necessarily have the results. So let's say we have an, a, a heart attack, the patient's being rushed up to the cath lab. We quickly test the patient on the way up, but they're not going to have the results before the end of the procedure, but then we know where where to put the patient, either in a COVID-free area or in, a, in an area where there is COVID, are COVID patients. Uh, so in terms of uh, getting the testing, is every patient now who is admitted to the hospital, uh, whether it be for a COVID-related illness or not, or a PUI or not, is everyone tested at some point? Uh, no, there is not blanket testing on every patient. There's we, you know, there's a certain capacity for tests, and there's not an unending capacity. So, for patients coming in clearly with 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 issues that are very clearly non-COVID related, um, they're not necessarily tested. All patients going to monitored areas, ICUs, step-down units, uh, to the for emergent procedures. Uh, where you can't necessarily uh, guarantee that the patient does not have any COVID issues. All of those patients are tested, but for routine uh, type patients, not necessarily. Stephen, I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball a little bit, and, and that is with respect to the emergency department of the future. I mean, St. Francis, you have really one of the best emergency departments. I've been there with a family member before in terms of the way it, it's physically set up and the way it operates. But obviously it changes all the time. And COVID and future pandemics, because we know this is not going to come and go and be the end of this. How is that going to change the ed- emergency department of the future? Um, good question. Um you know, we've, we've always been prepared for this kind of issue, perhaps not as systemic as, as we're having it now, but certainly we had to deal with SARS and MERS and, and H1N1 and Ebola. So, you know, we've built the ER um, in anticipation of that. I mean, we have, we have a highly developed uh, uh, HVAC system, um, we, have HEP, we are HEPA filtered, we have a lot of air exchanges, there's UV light um, uh, sterilization uh, in the system, so it's, it's as um, advanced as one can get at this point. Um, so we built the place in anticipation of that, we, but we really never fully uh, could prepare for what we're dealing with now. But I think the way the layout is, the way the operations are, um, even if this was something that would have to continue um, ad infinitum, we, we could handle it. We have a majority of our rooms are private, um, and so we can move, as long as we can move patients through the system well, it works well. Um, you know, we even built the, uh, the waiting room large enough to, uh, to deal with, um, you know, large, uh, uh, disasters, um, and, 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 and able to stage people in the waiting room if we had to, uh, God forbid an explosion and we would deal with the walking wounded and let's say in the, in the waiting room. So we tried during, during the design phase in 2009 and 10 to really, uh, to really try to 
anticipate as much as we can. I think I think the ERs of the future will be built with more private areas, with more private rooms. Um, a lot of ERs have have large open areas that are separated by curtains. That clearly is not sustainable in this sort of environment and uh and we we fortunately were able to build a, a new ER in 2011 with with all of those contingencies so um it, the timing was good for us but there are a lot of ERs that that have not um that were built quite a while ago and without that um ability to segregate patients that we can Stephen, what's the take-home message today for people who are home thinking, geez, I'm having a little bit of pain, I'm having a little bit of weakness, not sure what's going on, don't really want to go to the emergency room. Uh, what's the message today for those people who are starting to have symptoms of what may be a, a very bad condition? I think that what what is extremely important is that the, the risks of catching COVID in, in, in certainly in our emergency room are extremely low, but in most emergency rooms now in the state, uh, the, the chances are extremely small. The actual cases are much more reduced than they were uh, in, in April and May. And so the risks of staying home and, and not dealing with the symptoms that could be very life, very much life threatening is far outweighs the risks of of the very small risk of, of catching COVID. So it's really important that people um, take note of the symptoms they have. There are a lot of serious issues of abdominal pain, chest pain, shortness of breath, um, heart attacks. Um, you know, nothing good happens by staying home with those, and the risks of, of a bad outcome are significantly increased, as we saw during that height of the COVID time where people were staying home that should have come in. I mean, we saw very few strokes and heart attacks, and there's no question that those patients um, either arrested at home and then were brought to the hospital or arrested at home and died. There's no question that there was a significant increase in that. So really the message is, if if you are concerned about the symptoms that you're having and they you would under normal circumstances have gone to the emergency room certainly now during the sort of aftermath of the height of the covid you you should be seeking emergency care and not staying at home Stephen thank you thank you for your time thank you for the message and thanks for all you do over at St. Francis Thank you very much for the opportunity uh, many thanks today to our studio producer, Joe Costa, has been on the board, and thanks for all the people at WTIC who allow us to do this remotely. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be having a discussion about should your children go back to school? My guest is going to be pediatrician Dr. Lucia Benzoni, and we're going to be talking with her about that. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.